How good it is just to hear the scriptures read. I think of what Paul says in 1 Timothy, speaking of just the public reading of scripture. So what a blessing that is. Well, every every week here at Living Word Bible Church and in many churches, every week we partake of the Lord's Supper. And I, I love, again, I don't, I don't, I don't have visuals for sermons except for when God provides the visuals, and God has provided this visual for us this morning. And so every week we partake of the Lord's Supper, and I want to ask you, why do we do this? Sometimes we just do it, right? We've done it every week, and we try to take it seriously, I'm sure. I I appreciate that. It's not just motions that we go through. But at the end of the day, sometimes something that we, that we do repeatedly, sometimes we need to be reminded of what it really is, why we do it, what does it really mean. And we might ask, some of us might ask, why every week? Um, certainly I grew up in a church, a, a, a good fine church that observed it once a month. Um, there are some churches that I know of, uh, good churches that observe it once a quarter. Some might do less. So why, why every week? We used to observe it once a month. We saw last week. Now, that's, that's where we're going. But I want to do something here with you at the beginning. This first little opening segment might require just a little bit of brain power. When I say that, I shouldn't probably even say that. But I'm going to ask you just to really track with this first little segment, okay? Because this is important for setting up all that we're going to talk about. We saw last week that the new covenant sacraments, sorry, that the new covenant is not something outward, okay? It's, it's inward. The new covenant is the inward substance to that which the outward and typological, okay? Typological means it's something outward pointing to something else that's the real deal. A type is, you could say, a shadow reflecting the basic contours, the basic outline of the substance, but it's not the substance. So if you look at my shadow on the ground, it will outline me perfectly, um, but it's not me, it's not the substance. So a type, that's what a type is. And so the new covenant is the inward substance to which the old covenant types and shadows were pointing. And yet, even though the new covenant is inward and not outward, there are two outward sacraments that are fundamental, and this is what we lose, they are actually essential, not to your justification, not to getting saved, as it were, as people might talk about it today, but to our participation fully in all the new covenant blessings. Now, the new covenant blessings are all inward. So why do we need something outward that's essential to our inward participation in those blessings? Why is that? How do these external new covenant sacraments, how do they compare and relate to the old covenant external shadows and types? Now, remember, and I I encourage you to remember this, I use sacrament in the sense of a holy and a sacred Visible sign and seal. It's holy and it's sacred. 
Because it's, the baptism is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When you do something in the name of the triune God, that is holy. That is sacred. The Lord's Supper, by the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood. This is something holy, something sacred, this sacrament. So a sacrament is a holy and sacred, visible, so it's visible, something we can see and touch and taste, sign and seal of an inward saving grace. Not just, not just any grace, but a saving grace. Now, these inward saving graces that we experience, where were they in the Old Testament? Was anyone getting saved in the Old Testament? Was God saving anyone? Put it that way. Absolutely, right? There were inward saving graces. They were always operating during the days of the Old Covenant. But these inward saving graces that David experienced and Abraham and others, they were not themselves, they were not produced by the Old Covenant. Say they, they lived under an Old Covenant which could not produce any saving graces in them. None. So where did those saving graces come from? You know, that explains why even though God was working inwardly and savingly in the hearts of the Old Covenant believers, there were no Old Covenant sacraments. Do you see why that is? They could not have sacraments. Sacraments did not exist in the Old Covenant. They were impossible to have. The Old Covenant signs and seals, like circumcision was a sign and seal. There were others. They were all external signs, just like this is external. But the difference is, they were all of them external signs of outward and visible realities. So circumcision was given only, of course, to males. And it was the sign of membership in an outward covenant community. It was not the sign of any inward spiritual membership in a spiritual community. So everything was outward. But, but all those outward things were types pointing ahead to the substance that would be made available through the new covenant. Therefore, the old covenant signs and seals were all typological. They were not sacramental. They were typological because the old covenant itself was typological. The old covenant was, was completely external. It was completely outward. Now, it had an inward element insofar as it was tied to the real deal because it was the shadow of it. But it in itself was all outward. It could only point ahead to the new covenant as the grounds for any true inward transformation. So all the old covenant believers were like, man, I'm changed on the inside. God has changed me. Where did that come from? How did that happen, they wonder. Well, not through the Old Covenant, not through the Mosaic Covenant, not through washing my body with the water for purification, not through the blood of animals. So where did it come from? Well, it came from Jesus. But Jesus hasn't come yet. And so they were saved by faith as the substance of the New Covenant was applied to them proleptically, right? But there could be no sacraments because the covenant was not here yet. The substance, the inward substance was not here. There could be no sacraments. There could only be types. 
Now, I hope you already saw how amazing it is now that we can say, we have a sacrament. We have two sacraments. They had none. We have two. So, the new covenant signs and seals are therefore sacramental. Because the new covenant is itself the inward saving substance to which the old covenant was pointing. Let me put it like this very practically, and this is the beautiful part of it. In these new covenant sacraments, we hear and we see God's word in your handout. God's word to us. And what is he saying in these sacraments? He is confirming his saving work in us. In us. In our hearts. So last week, we saw that baptism is a sacrament. Okay, we've got, we've got the two, we don't have the water there now, and it's not, obviously, obviously the water in itself. It's only, when, it's only when we're using that water for baptism. But visually, we have the baptist, baptistry and the table. Okay? These are our sacraments. And we saw that baptism is the sacred and holy new covenant sign and seal of these inward saving graces our once-for-all cleansing from sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our once-for-all. So Gabe will never be baptized again because once he's cleaned, he's clean once for all. Same with all of us, right? Second, it is the sign and seal of our once-for-all passing safely in Christ through the waters of death and judgment. So there's, there's no, as we could say, there's no double jeopardy here, right? Once you've passed safely through the waters, there's not another ordeal to go through, right? Jesus went through that ordeal for us, and we passed through that ordeal in him. And so we came out safe, saved. Now then, what about the Lord's Supper? The key, I would say the first part of the key to understanding the Lord's Supper is understanding that it's a supper. Sometimes, sometimes the key is most obvious, staring you in the face. It's a supper. Just think about it. Uh, we could, we, I clarify, that means it's a meal. Where what do we do at a meal? We eat. We eat food. We, we drink. In our day, we can tend to forget that it's a meal, a supper, since we're not eating around a table. The, the table is here, but we're not eating, all eating around a table. And the amount of food we're eating, right, normally wouldn't be enough for a snack, much less a full meal. And so we can tend to diminish the, the, the symbolic picture of the meal. Maybe another reason we can tend to forget that the Lord's Supper is a supper, a meal, it's because it's often called communion. I don't know what tradition you grew up in or, or what, what the Lord's Supper was called, but there's nothing wrong with calling it communion. Um, Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless is a sharing, it's a communion in the blood of Christ. And the bread which we break is a sharing, a communion in the body of Christ. So that's why it's been called communion. I, I wonder, though, if I don't know the history 
maybe the reason we started calling it communion is because maybe we were a little nervous about the Roman Catholic uh, emphasis on it as a sacramental supper and meal. We're actually eating the actual physical body and blood of Jesus. So maybe we got away from calling it the, the supper for that reason. I, I don't really know for sure. But in the one in the only place where Paul names this sacrament, what does he call it? The only place where it's ever named in the Bible, it's called the Lord's Supper. So if the first part of the key to understanding the Lord's Supper is understanding it's a supper, can you guess what the second part is without looking at your nose? It's understanding that it's the Lord's Supper. Again, it's staring us right in the face. This is his table. He is our host. And he provides us the food. He provides us the drink. Now, in order to really grasp the full significance of this meal, and I wish, I wish, I really wish I had this table in front of me right now, because you guys get to see it and I don't. So if I keep looking back, that's just for my benefit. Okay. Um, in order to get the real significance of this meal, we need to understand the Old Testament background. Are any of you surprised by that? Right? The Old Testament is like the key. Sometimes, there's, there's been times, if I, now this is a big Bible right here, but it is only the Bible. Okay? There's no notes in it. So if I, if I look through this Bible, it, it's weird. Sometimes I'm like, I wish the New Testament was bigger. You know, because I got a huge Old Testament. And then if I take out the concordance, there's hardly any New Testament. Right? That's all right. That's all right, because the New Testament, once we have the Old Testament, you don't need a whole lot of New Testament. And that's the beauty. That's why, that's why it's so, such a sad commentary in our times that we neglect the Old Testament, as we do. Anyway, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. So we read it in Genesis chapter 26. Oh, not yet. One commentator points out that banqueting was one of the most important ancient institutions for social bonding. In your handout, another person says, the act of dining together in in ancient times is considered to create a bond between the diners. In the ancient world, and, and I'll say that that's in a way we can hardly conceive of today. You know, if I invite you over for a meal and then you go out and, and backstab me, yeah, oh well, I guess that wasn't nice. And, but in, in, in their day, no, no, that's not how it worked. If you shared a meal together, you were obligated and bound, in a, in a, in a sense, to one another because you just shared table fellowship. In the ancient world, this symbolism was carried by various elements of the banquet, such as the sharing of common food or sharing from a common table or dish. It's this bond that was created by eating together that explains the language of David in Psalm 41. David says, even my close friend in whom I trusted. And then he he says, even the one who ate my bread, bread being a symbol, a, 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 a word for food, even the one who ate my food has lifted up his heel against me. That was a shock. That was a disgrace. And it's this bond created by dining together that explains then, once we see that, why 
when people in the olden days would make covenants with each other, they would follow up the covenant by eating a meal together, by sharing food at a, at a common table. So we read in Genesis chapter 26, Abimelech and his advisor, Achuzath, these are the Philistines, said to Isaac, we see plainly that Yahweh has been with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us cut a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of Yahweh. Then Isaac made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In our day, we'd read that and be like, okay, so they ate and they drank. He's kind of making a big deal out of they ate and they drank. But we know now what that is. They're making a covenant. They're swearing an oath to one another. And when they do that, Isaac says, now let's eat together. And once they eat together, it is socially unthinkable that either party, Isaac or the Philistines, should do the other any harm. We could say that this shared meal, it signified and it sealed the covenant oath. The meal is not the oath, but it signs and seals the oath. So we read in Genesis 31, another example of this, but it introduces another ingredient, another element. Laban answered and said to Jacob, Come, let us cut a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and raised it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his relatives, Gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate. There, by the heap. What are they doing? Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold uh, this, the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm. Look, here it goes again. And you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham judged between us. So Jacob swore by the dread of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain, and he called his relatives to eat a meal. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Again, we see the same thing. And yet the new, the new thing here is that the food that they're eating is from an animal that they offered in sacrifice to God. In other words, what kind of meal is this? It's a sacrificial meal. So the point is to emphasize that God himself is a witness to this meal. Why do I, why before, you know, again, I don't want to make it too mundane, but I want us to see the altar was essentially a sacred, a very sacred grill, okay? Now, it was more than that. But, but you would cook the food the animal that you're sacrificing, it will be cooked on the altar. And then you would eat the food that was just cooked on the altar. Why, when they're making a covenant with each other, and they're about to eat a meal, which we get, why do they, why do they first sacrifice the food on the altar, which in this case was a heap of stones, grill it on the altar as it were, to God before they eat it together. Because by doing that, they're saying, God is a witness to our meal. God sees us eating together. And so he will hold us accountable to our covenant 
oath. Well, there's, there's no covenant explicitly mentioned in the next passage, but it appears that there is a covenant or some type of formal bond that's being established. Exodus 18 says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel. You, you get the idea something special is happening here. And what did they all do? They, they ate a meal with Moses' father-in-law. And where did they eat the meal? Before God. In all three of those examples that we've looked at so far, we have a meal between equal parties, between men. So now I'll ask you this. And you just get a, I mean, wonder at this. What, what happens when we have a vertical covenant that God initiates with us? What happens then? Come to see two meals at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, the Israelites are camped at Sinai. Moses sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you, in accordance with all these words. Okay, there's the covenant. We've got the bond being established. And then what do you do immediately after establishing the covenant? We read in verses 9 to 11. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Avihu, these are the priests, and 70 of the elders of Israel. So they represent the whole nation of Israel. You can't get the whole nation up close to the mountain or or around a table. So they all went up representing the people, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles, of the sons of Israel. Now, why would he not stretch out his hand against them? Because of the covenant that's just been made. So this covenant is, is, is ushering them into a bond with Yahweh. And so he does not stretch his hand out against them. Not only that, not only does he not stretch out his hand against them, but says they beheld God and they ate and they drank. What were they eating and drinking? Well, I know what they were, I believe I know what they were eating. They were eating from the meat of the animals offered in sacrifice from which the blood of the covenant came. And why were they eating and drinking? I believe it was because Yahweh himself had invited them and called them to sit down at this table in his presence as a sign now of their covenant bonds of fellowship that they had just entered into. Of course, we we don't think here of God actually eating the food. We know he wasn't sitting there eating the food with them, but the picture is there. We can think of God as being the host at this table, 
And the one who provides the food on the table by means of the covenant sacrifices. This is not just any food they're eating. This is the food from the covenant sacrifices. Now, if we understand that, okay, then then we we can feel the full weight of Israel's betrayal. Of Israel's betrayal in Exodus chapter 32. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Aaron looked and built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. In other words, we'll worship Yahweh via this golden calf. So the next day they rose early. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. So here's the food. And the people sat down to eat and to drink. So the same people who had just eaten a meal in the presence of Yahweh, invited to his table to share in this expression of this covenant bond with him, now eat a meal, as Paul would say, in the presence of demons. How can you do that? How can you eat a meal with God and then eat a meal with demons? And so what they do by eating that meal, as much as by any of, their, any of the rest of their sins, were, were bowing down to an idol and whatever other debauchery they engaged in, as much as by any of that, they break their covenant by eating the meal. It wasn't just at the initiation of the covenant, at the very beginning. It wasn't just at the beginning that the people ate a meal before Yahweh. These meals, these sacred meals, were woven into the heart of Israel's worship. So this, this eating and drinking was, was a part and parcel of worship. And this goes perfectly with what we talked about earlier about the nature of external temple worship. And if you're wondering about that, uh, and in fact, the early, early on, the Lord's Supper was first observed in the context of a, of a larger meal. And so I have a lengthy footnote on that. It will be on the website if you want to look at that. I'm not going to talk about that this morning. But um, many of the sacrificial animals that the people of Israel offered on the altar were to be eaten in God's presence. And sometimes we're just like, okay, that's what they did. But now we're talking about the Lord's Supper. This begins to have right meaning for us. We say, why are they doing this? They were eaten not just by the, by the one man who brings the sacrifice. They were eaten by his whole family. So his wife and his children and his servants. They would all eat the meal together from this sacrifice that he had offered. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 12. There to the place which Yahweh chooses for his dwelling... You shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your households shall eat before Yahweh. That's his covenant name, before Yahweh, your God. What is this eating? 
It's a covenantal eating. What was the significance? What did it mean when you ate a sacrifice that was offered on the altar before Yahweh? Now, we've said that if I made a covenant with one of you, we agreed on something together, and then we sat down to eat a meal, and we said, no, first let's offer this animal and sacrifice to God, and then we'll eat it together. What we were doing is calling God as a witness to our meal and to our oath. But when, but when God makes a covenant with us, and we offer the sacrifice to him, and the blood is applied to the horns of the altar, now what does it mean when we eat the food that was offered on his, on his altar? Now what does it mean? Now it's not just he's a witness to our, to our oath. No, it's something more. When we eat the food that comes from his altar, which is not a table, and this is not an altar, right? So we have to make sure we have that distinction. But here they're eating from his altar. What does that mean? Paul answers this question in 1 Corinthians 10. Look at Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Participants in the altar. They have fellowship in the altar. What does that mean? What he's saying, as one commentator puts it, is that everyone who ate the meal from the food that was taken from the altar they are counted as the ones who offered the sacrifice. So if my dad offered the sacrifice, but now I'm eating from the food of the sacrifice, the meat of the sacrifice, then God counts me as one of those who offered this sacrifice. And therefore, I share in all the benefits that arise from the altar. Right? I eat the food as a sign I share in the benefits of the altar. So look at it like this. I'm getting a material benefit from the altar right now because I got food for my stomach. And that material benefit that I'm getting, it represents the spiritual benefit of a right old covenant standing before God. So when I ate the food, that wasn't a sign necessarily I was saved. But it was a sign that I had a right old covenant standing before God. And that also arises from the altar. When I eat the food from the altar, it's a sign I participate in all the benefits arising from the altar. Therefore, eating food that was offered in sacrifice to Yahweh on his altar is the sign of a wonderful and unique covenant bond. That's going to be a key word. Bond with Yahweh himself and our participation in his redemption. How good it is to eat and to drink. Eating Yahweh's food in Yahweh's presence was a powerful sign of the covenant bond of fellowship he had entered into with his people. Now, when it comes to Old Covenant cultic meals, when I say cultic, don't think cults, as in false religions and things like that. Cultic simply means that associated with worship. 
And so a cultic meal is just a meal associated with Old Covenant worship. So when it comes to all these Old Covenant cultic meals or sacred meals, the one meal that stands out above all the rest is the annual cover-over or Passover meal. When we went through Exodus, I explained to you why I believe it should be cover-over, not Passover, but it doesn't make a huge difference. It's just hard for me to call it Passover when I believe it's cover-over. And we'll see why in a moment. So in Exodus chapter 12, it says, Your lamb shall be a male without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night. It's not, enough to, uh, it's not enough to slaughter the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. What else do you have to do? You have to eat it. You shall eat it roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now we might know this, of course, but let's, let's listen again in, in the context of cover-over. The blood of the cover-over lamb or goat applied to the doorposts and the lintel of the house meant that instead of entering that house to destroy the firstborn, Instead of entering it to destroy the firstborn, Yahweh would cover over. He would, the the Hebrew word almost certainly means he would hover over. He would hover over that house protectively. It's not that he would pass over it. Instead of entering it, he would hover over it, cover over it, protect those who were in it. You see, Yahweh, our salvation is not just pictured as Yahweh skipping over us. Our salvation is pictured in this Old Testament type as Yahweh hovering over and covering over us, protecting us. From what? From his own righteous judgments. See? He protects us from his own righteous judgments. We see that pictured in the cover over meal. This was a sign uh, so when the people, oh, sorry, <laughs> let me go back. Not only was this a sign that he would cover over them, but it was also a sign that he would deliver them from their slavery to the Egyptians. That's the crossing of the Red Sea. He would then form them into a nation in covenant with himself. That's at Mount Sinai. And then he would give them the promised inheritance of Canaan. So three things, deliver you from the Egyptians, make you into a covenant people, and bring you into the promised land. All of that is his redemption. All made possible because he hovered over their houses and, didn't let, and, didn't, and, and protected them from his own righteous judgments. So, in light of all that, when the people ate, when they were eating the cover over meal, which included the meat from the lamb or goat whose blood was right smeared on their doorposts, okay? That's the meat they're eating. It was a sign by their eating of this meal, of God's food he has provided for them. It was a sign of their participation in all the benefits 
of Yahweh's redemption. Now remember, this old covenant redemption, we, we, we tend to all automatically spiritualize this and be like, oh wow, what a, what a glorious thing. It's just like what we do when we eat the Lord's Supper. Of course, it was not just like what we do when we eat the Lord's Supper. That was not a sacrament. Remember, what was the redemption being pictured by that cover over a meal and sacrifice? It was external. It was out, outward. It was typological. Deliverance from Egypt. Crossing a, a sea. Being made part of an ethnic covenant people. Not necessarily a regenerate covenant people. And a temporal inheritance in a land that would one day be burned up. Right? Most of those who ate that first cover over meal, this is sobering, most of those who were spared the death of their firstborn were not true believers. There's scriptural evidence and proof for that. So when they participated in this meal, when they ate this meal, and when they participated in this outward old covenant redemption, it was a type pointing to their need for a participation in the true redemption. One day to be accomplished through Christ our cover over Lamb and the blood of the new covenant. Are we then prepared to understand the power and the beauty? Allow me to look at it of, of, of this meal. Of this meal. It's physical. We're allowed to look at it. Right? We're allowed to eat it. Taste it. In light of the meaning of sharing a meal in biblical times, in light of how sharing a meal was often used as a sign and a seal of a covenant oath and bond of fellowship, and in light of how sharing in a sacrificial meal, and, and again, I'm not going into the whole theology of all this, but this is, this is in one sense not a, it is, it is and it's not, right? Uh, so w- this is not a Roman Catholic Mass. But the problem is we've so reacted to that that we've, we've, we've lost what this actually is. In light of how sharing in a sacrificial meal was a sign of the fact that we're sharing in all the redemptive benefits that that sacrifice represents. It's a sharing in the altar. And in light of how all these realities are actually maybe most fully expressed in the cover over sacrificial meal, as we know it is Passover usually, then we can understand now the meaning of what Jesus does while he is eating, while he eats this cover over meal with his disciples. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. And giving it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat. See, we don't have the sign or the seal until 
we have eaten. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And again, for the Roman Catholic view, when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, they believe that through the priest's words of consecration, it actually becomes physically the body and blood. The outward form of the bread and wine is still there, but it becomes physically body and blood. Um, and so then what the priest is doing is he's offering a sacrifice to God. And this is why, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm not sorry, but I'm going to say this. Roman Catholicism is, the worship of Roman Catholicism is blasphemous. And the reason is, and I'm talking about as a church, I'm not saying every person who engages in that, because many Many people don't know actually what's going on. And God, God has likely done a work in many of their hearts so they maybe are, are truly worshiping God in full reliance on Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. But as far as the doctrine of the church, the idea that a priest offers up a sacrifice afresh every Mass to God, I don't have, I mean, may it not be a hobby horse we're on. May it be something that that grieves us and and causes us almost to be undone inside. Okay, so that's that's transubstantiation. Our Lutheran, uh, some some certainly, our brothers and sisters, used to be more true, but but the, the view there is consubstantiation, which says, and they're trying to grapple with the mystery that says that, um, it doesn't actually become his physical body and blood, and yet, and yet in, with, and under the, the elements of bread and, and the bread and the cup is the physical body and blood of Jesus. Now that, that makes literally no sense. But that's why I guess we call it a mystery. So we don't, because I, I, I don't even know what that means. And I'm not making fun. I'm just saying I, I cannot understand it. And I, I'm not saying we should be able to understand all mysteries. Because, in fact, I don't quite fully understand this sacrament as God himself has given it to us. Because it's wonderful beyond my comprehension. Now, there's the view that I'm suggesting here, which is the Reformed view. And then there's the view that that this meal is basically just a symbol reminding us of something. And that's what most of us, maybe, perhaps, unless you've come from a Lutheran or Roman Catholic background. Well, even if you did come from that, you probably came swing, swung, swung all the way over to the other side, the other extreme, which is, this is, this is just a, a memorial. It's just reminding me of something. Which is, this is very sad. So when we see Jesus in this context, saying, take, eat, this is my body. Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood. What is Jesus doing? He is taking the Old Covenant typological cover-over meal, which really sums up all the other sacred meals of the Old Covenant, and he transforms it. He transforms it now into a new covenant 
sacramental meal. Oh, no longer is this meal the sign of an outward temporal redemption, a type. Now it has become the sign of an inward and an eternal redemption, a sacrament. And so, in the end, we see it's not the same meal at all. The cover over meal in your handout is rendered obsolete, so we do not observe the Passover meal any longer. It's rendered obsolete, and I'm, I, it's rendered obsolete along with all the other sacred Old Covenant meals. Why? Because they have all of them been fulfilled. All those meals, all those Old Testament meals have all been fulfilled in this one meal, the Lord's Supper. Now then, how do we look at this? Because this meal, being sacramental, it's way better than any of the typological meals. It's in and through the new covenant that Jesus gives us the food to eat, which, as he says in John chapter 6, endures to eternal life. What Jesus said, you can eat of this bread that I just gave you, that I multiplied, the bread and the fishes. You can eat of that bread and you're going to die. But the food that I give you is the kind of food that endures to eternal life. This is a food, then, that we eat not with our mouths. We eat it spiritually, by faith. So Jesus says in John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Not, who, not he who eats this bread. Right? Then he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... That's a metaphor for savingly appropriating the benefits of his sacrificial death by faith. You say, that's a lot of words and it's big words. But here's the thing. If if you want to understand eating flesh and drinking blood, you need those words. You just need them. So what does it mean to eat Jesus' flesh and drink Jesus' blood? It's a metaphor for savingly appropriating all the saving benefits of his sacrificial death by faith. Unless you do that, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you don't have any life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, in other words, he who believes, has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is, now look what he says, true food. What he means by that, no, my flesh is not that stuff, actually. My flesh is the real deal. It's the spiritual food, to which all other food points. And my blood is true spiritual drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him fellowship, bond, covenant. So here's the miracle. Not only... Does Jesus provide the meal as the host at the table? He himself is the food at the table. As by faith we partake, we eat and drink of all the redeeming blessings that come to us through his sacrificial death on the cross. So 
So not only does Jesus host the meal and provide the food, Jesus is the food that we partake of together through faith. this This is the inward reality. While Old Covenant believers did partake of Christ by faith. Let's come back to where we started. If you were a David or an Abraham, you did partake of Christ by faith. But that was not a blessing belonging to the Old Covenant. They partook of Christ by virtue of a covenant not yet even established. The covenant we have today. So this is why there could never be any Old Covenant sacramental signs and seals of eternal redemption. They had eternal redemption, but they had no sacraments. We have eternal redemption. And we have two sacraments. Now that this new covenant is here, this meal that we eat is in fact the sign and seal of our spiritual participation and all the true and eternal blessings that come to us through Christ's sacrifice. And that includes all the blessings that you read about in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it includes all those blessings all the way up until the day when Jesus will not just be spiritually present with us as the host at his table, but he will actually be physically present with us and even physically eating eating and drinking with us in his kingdom. You see, when you think about, people ask, are we going to be eating and drinking in heaven? You better believe we're going to be eating and drinking in heaven. And it's not going to be some kind of gluttonous feast for all of us who just love food. It's going to be, it's going to be the eternal consummation of these sacred meals right? and the joy that surrounds that table fellowship. Now, not only with certainly one another, but with our covenant Lord. Here, then, in this meal that Jesus provides for us and that we eat in his presence is the sign and the seal of a covenant bond of fellowship with him and even of our being nourished upon him, the one who is himself our food. And our drink. So intimate is this connection that Paul, as we saw last week, uh, Peter and Paul do with uh, baptism. Paul refers to the spiritual reality by means of the external sign. See, again, this is where as Protestants, and especially as those who come from a non-reformed Baptist background, we might get a little hesitant here with Paul. We might say, I don't know, Paul, if you worded that accurately enough or safely enough. But we know that's not true, is it? What does Paul say? Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? That's powerful language, far more powerful than we have usually given it credit for. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And so we see now how our regular observance of this sacrament is fundamental and even essential. Not to our justification, remember that, not to our justification, but to our full 
participating in all the blessings of the spiritual and inward new covenant. We need the outward to fully participate in the inward. It's only when we eat this meal and at no other time that we hear by faith Jesus' constantly renewed word to us. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink, all of you, for this is my blood. When else can you hear those words spoken to you by faith? Only when we take of this meal together. This is why it is biblically appropriate for us to eat the Lord's Supper. And again, I've explained at other places and times why the Lord's Supper is expected biblically to be observed every Sunday. But this is one reason why it's biblically appropriate for us to eat the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. You eat the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. It just is what you do because it is impossible we should ever hear these words too often. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was not saying that this is just a bare memorial. I already outlined the difference between Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, and more, more independent. Remember we said last week, sometimes baptism is erroneously thought of primarily as a public testimony of my faith in Jesus. It is that, but that's not what it is primarily. And in fact, that's only indirect, secondary. Well, if that's a wrong approach that we've taken to the Lord's Supper, then the wrong approach we've taken to baptism, then the wrong approach we've taken to the Lord's Supper is thinking of it primarily as a way of helping me remember something and meditate on something. But when Yahweh reveals his name to Israel, when he reveals his name, who he is to Israel, this is what he says. This is my name forever, and this is my remembrance name. What is a remembrance name? It's the name by which he is to be remembered. What does it mean to remember Yahweh? It means to worship him and to call upon his name. It's not just thinking about it, not just remembering stuff. It's to remember is to call upon, to worship. So God says in another place, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, that means worshipped, called upon at my altar, I will come to you there and bless you. When Jesus then says, do this, as, it, as we put on, on the table, in remembrance of me, he is not, we're not talking about remembering just something. He's saying that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, God is revealing his name to us in Christ. So that we might then call upon that name that he reveals in thanksgiving and in praise. This is a picture of that covenant bond of fellowship. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he is promising that in this meal, where in particular 
God is revealing his name to us in Christ. And where we are then calling upon that name by faith, he is promising that he himself comes to us and blesses us. Of course, this is something that we partake of only by faith. Here is an expression of our covenant bond of fellowship with him, our participation in his redemption. Here's another reason why it's biblically appropriate for us to eat the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. Is it possible to ever have his name revealed to us too often? Or to hear too often this assurance that he comes to us and he blesses us? Why would we not want to hear that every Sunday? We've been emphasizing that in this meal, we have this sign and seal of a vertical fellowship and bond with God himself, with Christ. But because this covenant is made, God didn't just make a covenant with you and then someone else with you and then you, right? He made a covenant with the bride, with the body of Christ. And therefore, indirectly, but yet really, this meal that we eat together. That's why, that's why you don't just get it and then you eat and then, oh, we have the rest of you eat later when you get it. No, we all eat together. Because it is the sign and the seal of our covenant bond of fellowship with one another. This is why Paul said that the people who were eating the Lord's Supper in Corinth, and while they're eating the Lord's Supper, they're, they're dissing, I don't know if that's a bad word, they're, they're being mean to everyone else, okay? I don't even know what that word means. So they're eating the Lord's Supper, and they're going ahead and eating without everyone else, and then they're taking all the food and not giving food to anyone else. And Paul says, that's why some of you have died. Because this meal is the sign of your covenant bonds of fellowship with one another. And, and yet you're undermining that fellowship and that bond through the way you treat one another. That's why you're sick and dying. Because of God's judgments. Paul says, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Again, this is not to say that at the Lord's Supper, it's a time for us to have conversation with each other because it's our fellowship with one another. The conversation like we would have at a church picnic or a potluck. But what it is to say is that nowhere else do we have, except perhaps in baptism, Do we have more powerfully represented to us our oneness in Christ than we do in this sacramental meal that we all share in? And I love the word. You know what it is, right? Together. Here's yet another reason why it is biblically appropriate for us to eat the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. And also why... Here's, here's, I'm going to say something else. This is very important to me, and I think it should be to all of us. Why any voluntary neglect of the gathering of the church every Lord's Day to eat the Lord's Supper is a sin against God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord 
in an unworthy manner. In other words, while unrepentantly sowing discord in the church, we, we've taken that and said, we have to examine our hearts and make sure we're all, all cleaned up and ready to eat the meal. Well, that kind of is against the whole point, right? We eat the meal as a sign that God cleans us, right? That we have fellowship with him in his death and resurrection. But, but, but when we eat in an unworthy manner, that means that I'm going to eat this meal all the while I'm backstabbing you. Literally, out, backstabbing you. And then I'm going to eat this meal. That's an unworthy manner. You should not be eating this meal. I should not be eating this meal. We don't have to work to get ourselves worthy enough through enough confession and enough repentance, enough searching to make sure I don't got any hidden sins that aren't in the way. That's not the point. It's not what Paul is saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't be care about those things. But now, what does Paul say? Whoever does this, whoever eats in the bread or drinks the cup, of the Lord, in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of what? The body and the blood of the Lord. Now I ask you then, what does that mean? When we voluntarily neglect the Lord's Day assembly, by default, what is that? What are you neglecting? When you neglect the Lord's Day assembly, where the Lord's Supper is observed. We are neglecting the body and the blood of the Lord. And I want to ask us because sometimes we, sometimes like, well, I don't know if I can figure out a logical response to that, but I just don't kind of think, I think he's kind of overstating it. I think that's exaggerating it. And so we go home and we just kind of, just ignore it. And... But I'm, what I'm suggesting to you is that it doesn't matter how we feel about it. It doesn't matter if we kind of feel like that's in line or not with Scripture. It is biblical. And so this is why I've often pointed out, and it's not a problem that we have at this body, but I want us to see why, why watching the service online is not worship. It is not worship. Not worship, which is external temple worship, which we've talked about. Particularly, watching the service online means that we are, in fact, if we are voluntarily neglecting, and I'm not going to define voluntary neglect. If you miss a week because whatever, you had this or that. Again, this is not legalism. This is heart. This is about the heart of things. And so when we watch the service online, if that's a voluntary neglect of the assembly, we are in fact neglecting the body and the blood of Jesus. And whatever else we make of it, however we try to weasel out of that and try to make it not not actually that bad, and no, it is a sin against God. Sometimes that sin is more knowledgeable than others, and this sermon has just increased the knowledge. Sometimes it's more naive. And ignorance, a sin in ignorance. And God takes all that. He knows all that. So this is not about me now going out and hellfire and brimstone judgment on everyone I see who's not in church. Neither is it for you to do. We don't know the motives. We don't know the hearts. We don't know all these things. But at the same time, we ought to, we ought to be willing to speak the truth to people in love. And perhaps sometimes I have been reticent to do that myself.
But then let us remember, because I don't want to end this on a downer. The downer is only the sign of how wonderful this is. Because of, as, as I, I think I said to you last week, it's only because of how beautiful and glorious the Lord's Supper is that neglecting it is such a sin. Remember then that this sobering warning is the corollary. It's just the necessary consequence of how wonderfully powerful and beautiful this sacramental meal really is. Our sharing in this meal, to sum up, I'm going to say two things we said before. Well, I've said it all, I think, but not all in your handout. Our sharing in this meal is the sign and seal of our sharing in all the true, eternal blessings that come to us through Jesus' sacrificial death. Our sharing even in Jesus himself is our true food and our true drink. Here in this meal that Jesus provides for us and that we eat in his spiritual presence because he promises to be present with us through his spirit is the sign and seal of our covenant bonds of fellowship with him. We're going to eat a meal. And therefore also of our covenant bonds of fellowship with one another. Here we see then how fundamental, and even in your handout, how essential is our regular observance of this sacramental meal to our full participation in the blessings of the new covenant. It is only, it is only when we eat this meal that we hear by faith, by faith, Jesus' constantly renewed word to us. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink, all of you, for this is my blood. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for revealing this to us. Thank you that I had this to talk about this morning. Because you revealed it, because you put it in your word, because it's been enfolded through centuries, through, through even millennia. And now we live in the day of sacraments and no longer of types. We live in the day of the new covenant, no longer of the old. So now we thank you for this table. We thank you for this meal that we will share in joyfully together at which Christ himself is the host, are spiritually present with us, and at which we have represented to us that Christ himself is our food, our true spiritual drink, our true spiritual food. Father, I pray that you would, that you would enable each one of us to value highly not only, not only the Lord's day at which we gather for your worship, that we would show that we value that in all the most mundane and practical ways, but also the most internal and inward ways of the heart. Help us, Lord, to value most highly the observance each week 
of this meal that you have so graciously provided for us as the sacramental sign and seal of that food that we eat, not with our mouths, but spiritually, by faith. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not yet come to Jesus and, had, and, and has eternal life through believing, through eating and drinking, through being now nourished upon Christ, we pray that, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, work that in them even this morning. That they would then pursue baptism and admission to your table. We thank you now that you've given us this time to to share this meal now together. In Jesus' name, amen.